0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Too much. That is too much tweeting. Yes, this week on Download This Show, why are some Twitter users being told that they've gone over their daily limit of tweets, sometimes reportedly on days where they haven't tweeted anything at all? Also on the show this week, the world of AI interfaces sees Microsoft and Google going head-to-head, which AI chatbot is better and can solve more problems? And Ukraine has been relying on satellites for its network of surveillance drones against the Russian invasion. So, why has access to those satellites been turned off by Elon Musk's Starlink? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. (laughs) Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show, and welcoming back uh, social media expert and managing director of Coffee and Tea, Meg Coffee. welcome back. Hello. And uh, alongside, literally alongside Meg, uh, we have Mike Hobkin, Deputy Chief of Staff of The Conversation. Welcome back to Download This Show. Hello. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is entirely mine. Now, have either of you noticed whether your tweets have been curbed out of curiosity just in the last couple of weeks?
0: Oh gosh, don't get me started on the tweets. It's uh, Yes, yes, it is. The only tweets I currently see are Elon's. Yes. And mine are definitely not being shown.
1: So there's uh, something that started appearing really just in the last couple of days, which is a number of, uh, let's call them high output tweeters, uh, have been getting a message saying you're over your daily limit for sending tweets, Mike. Now, is this because that they're trying cut
2: back in the sheer number of people tweeting or is it a broader technical issue? I mean, who knows what's going on with Twitter really? <laughs> and you could honestly, you know, throw a dart at a dartboard covered with possible <laughs> explanations for this and, you know, just take your pick. I was quite disappointed because I haven't been able to get my tweets to be, uh, to suffer having been branded as being rate limited. I've been trying hard, <laughs> but clearly I'm not a prolific enough tweeter compared to some people. So I haven't managed to get mine. Uh, mine are still publishing. So yeah, what am I going to do? Tweet more? Maybe that's what he wants us to do. Look, Everyone tweet more until we all get rate limited.
0: I was limited before I'd even sent out my first tweet the day that it happened. So I don't know what that's about. Mm. That's just straight, you're not allowed to
1: tweet. It's funny. I was, when this started popping up, I guess the first, I mean, we know that there's been uh, huge slashes in staff for Twitter and we know that there's been a a raft of technical issues in the last couple of months. But one thing that stuck out to me is I, I couldn't decide even whether it's intentional or not, Meg, is it possible? It's maybe a good thing. Like maybe limiting the amount people tweet.
0: Look, it is. But then you have the people like me who found a way to hack it and log on to the web version of Twitter because I'm that addicted and needed to get my message out.
1: Wait, wait, wait. wait. So if you go to the, the web version, does it reinstate your, your, your Twitter quota?
0: Yeah. And if you remember back when it all broke and the only way you could get tweets out was by scheduling them, you had to jump on the web client to do it. So you couldn't do it in the app, but you could do it in the web client. And there were people that are addicts. Hi, my name is Meg. And we did that because there, it was that problematic. Yeah, some of us do need to be stopped.
1: Is this a cry for help? Is that what this is?
0: <laughs> yes, I think so.
1: One of the things I was curious about, Mike, is is there a sense of whether or not this affects the subscriber base, right? So obviously with Twitter, they they launched a uh, a paid for iteration of Twitter. And is there any sense of whether or not these issues affected those people that are paying for access? Because that would be quite... I guess, quite scandalous if it was.
2: Yeah, I mean, you'd have to assume not. But then, you know, if it is a glitch, then there's no reason why it wouldn't affect people who are paid subscribers as well, unless those people are getting more back-end support on their their use of the website. So, I mean, these are all questions that we don't really know the answer to. But I think, anecdotally speaking, I mean, I know there are a lot of people who aren't necessarily going to, unsubscribe or throw their twitter account away but they're just sort of emerging blinking into the day- the daylight and thinking well there are maybe other things i could do with my time and my eyeballs no. so i think people are just <laughs> i mean it depends how deep into the twitter you know vortex you are but i think What's ironic about the whole thing is that people are going to, you know, Twitter, and Elon Musk is very keen to sort of bring back the town squariness and, you know, the, the the public discourse of Twitter. But what you're doing is kind of putting off a lot of the just everyday sort of casual users and you're leaving, you know, those of us who work in the media or, you know, we have to put our content out. It's part of business models. And so that's what you're keeping in Twitter because people are vested in it.
1: Well, I guess it's an interesting point, whereas I think if the only people left on Twitter are sort of hardcore Twitter users, hello, Meg, welcome to the show, <laughs> um, uh, does does that create an environment that feels almost hostile to people that are sort of casualized uh, Twitter users? And, and I guess, you know, the, the side effect of that is is it really would limit your capacity for growth, Meg. If, if people who are like, ah oh, I might want to tweet are sitting there looking at going, oh, no, this is a scary space.
0: Yeah, if it, you know, a if you make it too hard, you know the, the barrier to entry, people are going to run, and b yeah, I, I do think that you might make it, um, you know, almost it it becomes a club or you know a, a cult feeling. You're not you're not part of it, therefore you you shouldn't even be looking at it. Um, it's interesting. It's, you know, I, I am an addict of Twitter. It is my favorite platform, but it is fascinating to me how it has changed just since Elon's taken it over. And, you know, I don't, I I legitimately don't see the people that I follow anymore. And all these friends that are, you know, maybe not in real life friends, but Twitter friends, I'm not coming across their content. And that's what I miss because I don't want just the hardcore news sports and politics. Yes. I love that part of Twitter, but I also want those interactions with, with people.
1: One other interesting development in the world of Twitter is if you've been following the horrific uh, news of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, one of the things that's happened is there's been widespread criticism of Twitter actually limiting access. Now, and that I think that really flies in the face of, I think, the history of Twitter. If you look back at the, over the history of Twitter, I mean, it's it's been crucially involved in major disasters and, and huge political uprisings as well. I mean, the Arab Spring, Twitter is often talked about as being one of the crucial platforms there. What's actually happened uh, over in Turkey and, and Syria, Meg?
0: Yeah, look, it is. It is absolutely horrible what's happened with the earthquake. And, and as you said, Twitter has been at the base of so many... Important news moments. It is it is the it is the core tool for that citizen journalism. You are right there on the ground and you can see, um, and so it has allowed people to connect. You know when traditional uh, media is out and they don't have ways of of getting their story out, or on the flip side, finding out what's going on unfortunately, what's happened this time, and it's not that necessarily Twitter's been doing anything wrong. It's that the country itself has said, well, look, we don't want our citizens to have access to this platform. The, the government in Turkey doesn't, doesn't believe, in my opinion, doesn't believe that their citizens should have access to it because then they can talk about what's really going on. And if you talk about what's really going on, well, then the world finds out what's really going on. Well,
2: um, I think it's probably something that uh, authoritarian governments are coming to realise the power and the possibility of. Uh, I mean, I think the other important thing to remember here is that Twitter is really good for covering breaking news, and it comes into its own when you've got things like disasters. But it's also beyond that in that it's a vital part of the response and coordination of helping people who've fallen victim in these disasters. So if you think about stuff like um, Hurricane Sandy in the US, like these are you know you can geolocate people who might be trapped in buildings or locate them and help them via via tweets or text messages. So it's not just sort of censoring journalistic coverage of the events as they're unfolding, but it's actually preventing help from getting to the people who are still involved and might need that help.
1: Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And our guest this week, Mike Hopkin, Deputy Chief of Staff with The Conversation and social media expert, Meg Coffey. Mark Fennell is my name. And who wants to watch giant artificial intelligences go to war? Anybody? (laughs) Anybody? Just me? So in the last couple of weeks, more and more people have been talking about the language platform that is ChatGPT, which if you haven't tried it before, highly recommend it. Uh, it's free. You log on. You start talking to a what is essentially a chatbot, and it's very good at uh, language things. It's very good about yeah, write me a sonnet in the manner of Shakespeare. Uh, less good on facts, it should be said. Uh, but as much attention as ChatGPT has gotten, Google have unveiled their competition. Tell me about it.
0: Yeah, so this is uh, this is an interesting one, and it is it's not been Bard is is Google's new thing, and it's not been released to the public. It is air quote in the hands of testers, trusted trusted testers. testers. I like that. Yes, <laughs> um, and so it is. Yeah, it is. It is the competitor, or what will be apparently the competitor to Chat GPT. It you know Microsoft owns Chat, Google's going to own Bard. The difference is is that Chat is in our hands and we can use it, and Bard when they when they announced it the other day didn't exactly perform like it was meant to.
1: Why? So what happened? Because I, all I saw was the news story that it like it had slashed uh, value of the <laughs> share price. So what actually happened?
0: So they did this big unveiling and they had, you know, they'd gone in. And as you say, it's a chatbot, right? So you go in and you just ask it a question and it will return answers for you. And depending on the type of question you ask, how well the the answer will, will come out. And so it asked it about, um, it was the James Webb Telescope. And they said, you know, they returned an answer that was factually incorrect. And it said that this new telescope that we have was the first one to to take the photos. It was the first one to take photos of its kind. And so everybody went, oh, no, this is horrible. It's, you know, this great big technology. And it's just returned a false Piece of information. What does that actually mean? And then a hundred billion dollars or something like that was wiped.
1: <laughs> I mean, I understand why it got that reaction, but Chat GPT is dreadful on facts, Mike. <laughs> I don't know that it's any better. Like, it's actually. I mean, and I say that because it's not actually what it's designed for. It's it's a language platform. It's about what you connect it to that's going to matter. Why was this considered so damaging for for Bard, but from Google? Oh, I
2: mean, possibly because. People aren't quite aware of the strengths and limitations of the technology so far, and you know that's probably uh, that's probably Google's fault for hyping it up more than it, um, or, or choosing the wrong example to demonstrate during during the launch. Um, so I think it's like anything, really. I mean, we don't know the full potential and the billions that these companies are throwing into developing the next iterations of this technology. Like we don't actually know where it's going to go, where the companies want it to go and what the potential is. So I think all we can do now is look at, you know, what is it good at, you know, rephrasing speeches. You know, if you've got an email to write, uh, you could, you know, say, write me, write me, um, uh, you know, write me this or write, write me an essay in, in the style of whatever. Uh, but it's no good at you know, things like predicting the future. It probably says more about me than AI that the first question I ever asked ChatGPT when I tried it was, uh, will Tottenham win the Premier League in the next 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> it refused to speculate, uh, saying it can't predict the future. I mean, I don't know if I want to know the answer anyway, really deep down.
1: So so it's not Nostradamus is what I'm hearing. It
2: can't no. predict the future.
0: But, but Mike, have you asked it if it knows you? Have you done the ultimate ego test?
2: So my second question to ChatGPT <laughs> was, write some tweets in the style of at Mike Hopkins and and I was offended to discover that it said it didn't know enough about my tweets to be able to imitate me. So maybe this comes back to the idea that I'm still not tweeting enough.
1: You know what? Uh, don't feel bad. If, uh, people who've been listening to the show for a couple of weeks will know that I um, I, I have no shame about the fact that I asked questions about myself. And my defence is that that was the only way I could truly fact check because if it asked me questions about me, no one knows me better than me. And the number of things it got wrong was just off the charts. And the thing that I found most confusing about it is that it was very opaque in terms of trying to work out how it had arrived at some of its answers. So, you know, it it said, for example, that I hosted, have you been paying attention, which I've never hosted. I was like, but why do you think that? Like, I was trying to work out where are you drawing from to, to get that idea. Interesting that's been made. I, I frame this up as something of a race or a war between Google and Microsoft here. But uh, it has been said, and I think it was in an interview with the New York Times, that for Google, this isn't just an AI race. It's a race to survive, Mike.
2: Why is this a race to survive, particularly for Google? One answer is the fact that Google knows that Microsoft is doing the same thing as well. So in that respect, you know, it's a battle between two huge companies that both want to uh, be the first ones to roll out the best version of this technology they can. And I was listening to some discussions about this earlier in the week and people were saying, you know, this is fantastic new technology. And the great thing about it is that we as the public have the power to choose what we use it for and where it goes. And I don't know if I actually buy that. Like, Microsoft and Google have the power to choose what they're (laughs) going to use it for. And we all just sit there, you know, to an extent. We don't understand the back ends of these technologies. We're just going to see, you know, sort of what, what happens to them as we're going along.
1: Okay, so now that we have two major sort of search engine powers, right? So, you know, Bing and Google are both pretty decent search engines. Google's, of course, the more famous one, but Bing functionally works, right? The idea of connecting a, a really highly developed language service to a proper search engine feels, you know, useful or terrifying. But Useful. Let's go with useful. The time being, to me, in the sense that all of the issues I was talking about before, with the fact that it was inaccurate or didn't know enough about your tweets, Mike, uh, you could see how you know hooking it up to uh, a search engine or giving it direct access to the firehose of that search engine could mean that it gets better, it gets smarter. The question I have is, where do they make money from it? Right, like where are the money opportunities for bard or for chat GPT for for, for those big tech companies behind them, Meg?
0: Well Chat GPT now has chat GPT Plus. So you can pay for it. Um, you can sign up. And when you do have the, the paid version, you get um, faster response times from the chatbot. Um, the free version can often time out if there's lots of people trying to log in and use it. So when you're in the paid version, it guarantees you access. So immediately, that's where, that's where Microsoft's going to make money off chat GPT. It'll be interesting to see how it comes out in the chat, sorry, in the search results, because it's changing the way that we search. It's no longer, you're no longer searching for things and being given a list of links to go get more information. It's going to change it that you ask it a question and it answers the question. It's becoming almost an answer engine rather than a search engine. And I think when they integrate the advertising into that, that's where they'll make the money off of it.
2: Yeah, I think that's. I think that's the crucial point, is that, you know, Bard is set to be linked up to, you know, it will say, I want a new, uh, uh, you know, extension built on my house. How do I do it? And then they'll just tell you how to do it. And it will say, you go and call this guy and you go and do it. And I think it's almost like we all get the chance to, you, you Google something and you scroll past the things that are obvious paid adverts. And then you look at the organic search results down at the, underneath that. Often <laughs> they're, page the, they're, three. they're the exact same websites <laughs> yeah. you know, sometimes. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm not going to click on the ad, but I'll click on the same company's Google listing. But, yeah, as you say, you don't get the chance to do that if you're just getting a response from, you know, uh, an AI saying, do this now or call this person. What do
1: you reckon the timeline on all this is? Because at the moment, I was thinking about this the other day where we have these slightly disparate pieces of technology, right? We have obviously things like Siri and Alexa and Cortana where you can, you know, you can talk to it and the the voice recognition is pretty solid most of the time. And then you have these incredible repositories of ever-updating information in the form of Google Search Engine and Bing. And then in the middle you've got something like ChatGPT and BARD, which is a really sophisticated communications uh, interface where it really does very much feel like you're interacting with, with a human being. How far away are we from those? Because at the moment they're all, they are still kind of slightly separate experiences. And, you know, certainly talking to Alexa or, or Siri, it has its very significant limitations, right? It, it can do certain things quite well and then a lot of things it just does badly. So how far away are we from those sort of three prongs actually being, a, you know, coalesced together to become a really powerful I'm not non-sentient uh, interaction experience, mate.
0: Look, I think you know, in 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 Mike's field, say in academia, I think it's it's very very close. I think for general public consumption, it's not as fast. But I think I think what's going to happen when you look at the uptake of ChatGPT over the past two months, three months, it's fast. This adoption is going to be fast.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, I'm still waiting for Siri to be as good as uh, I was imagining it would be when I first started using it. But, you know, like you say, it's it's something that is more help than hindrance. It's quicker to use Siri for the things it's good at than it would be to to get your phone out of your pocket and or, or you know, start typing something. So I think to an extent it depends how the types of things that people in the, that people end up using it for and how seamlessly that becomes a part of your just day-to-day online life. You know, it may be, I'm thinking about, you know, I spend a lot of my time, you know, typing written communications to people, whether it's editing articles or, and, you know, I'm not suggesting we should use ChatGPT to put journalists out of business because that is a terrifying prospect for, for me and any other journalist. But you can easily imagine that in it would blend quite seamlessly into uh, average office life if you've got emails to type or whatever. But I think we're still waiting to see how seamless that blend actually will be. So I don't know really whether you could put a time frame on it. I, would, I wouldn't know enough to guess at the moment. It's interesting
1: the thing you just said, like, you don't, want, you don't want ChatGPT writing articles like a journalist would, but perhaps sending emails. Perhaps we're looking at something that has, like, the functionality of a personal assistant that can kind of fill out some of the admin parts of your life. Are there particular kinds of functionality that you, you think actually... This sort of technology would be great. It would actually really help my life. Are there functions out there that you hope
2: that you're just (laughs) waiting on ChatGPT to go, yeah, I'm ready, put me in coach? I mean, telling me when Tottenham are going to win the Premier League (laughs) is top top of my list. At the moment, you can't rely on it to be completely autonomous. I think it becomes a more salient question when it reaches the point where you, in theory, could. You could say, write me a quarterly report, ChatGPT, and send it to the board. And there are probably people who are like itching for that prospect to come true because they don't like writing their quarterly reports. But at the moment, I think it's it, it's a more relevant question in the future once it gets to the point where you really could just leave it to its own devices. But at the moment, everything is subject to human review anyway, as it should be, because it would terrify me to let it do anything on its own.
1: Yeah, it's been interesting. I've been watching, for some reason I do have to follow a lot of academics and teachers on, on on social media. It's been interesting seeing them navigate it. And one of the things, I saw a, a very, uh, I guess, quite a progressive take on the situation from one teacher who basically said, use it to get around writer's block. Yeah. Um, when, you're, when you're stuck, you know, pump something into it and, and use it to kind of leap over writer's book. Like use it in ways that make you a better writer. Use it in ways that, that help solve kind of problems but, but recognize its limitations. Well, does that sound right to you, Meg?
0: It's spot on. It's exactly what I was going to say. We use it for prompts, for ideas when we need, you know, when we just need a little bit of direction, we're a little bit, you know, stuck um, on something um, or we need some ideas, you know, what, what topic should we be writing about right now? Like, you know, any of that kind of stuff, it's just when you, that writer's block and we do, we jump in there and we, you know, we give it a really good descriptive sentence and then it comes back with, you know, 10 prompts and go, oh, wow, there's actually maybe two good blogs. Posts in there. Let's go. Let's go research and write that.
2: I mean, to my mind, the future is that once it develops analytical capabilities, you know. So I'm thinking you could use it to spot trends. You know, in or well, talking about earthquakes, it, you, you could if AI could develop the potential for earthquake forecasting or economic forecasting, climate modeling. These are all the things that I think it could, you know, really work in the service of humankind, but of course, it refuses to predict the future at the moment because it can't. It's only trained on what it's trained on. But that, to me, would be the, the real AI breakthrough, is, is analysing trends and predicting the future. All right, download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in
1: media, technology and culture. If you happen to live in a regional part of Australia, you will probably be familiar with Starlink. It is one of the foremost ways in which people connect to the internet when they don't have access to sort of things like the NBN. And it is used all around the world, including, Mike, uh, in Ukraine during, of course, the war. But there's been some controversy over how Starlink as a wireless connection to the internet has been used. That's right. So
2: Starlink, uh, which is owned, owned by SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's company, has has withdrawn its service now specifically from Ukraine because the Ukraine defense forces were using a huge fleet of drones to monitor Russian troop movements in, in the invasion and sort of um, use it as part of their military intelligence gathering capabilities. Now, what Starlink has argued in response to that is that its services were never designed to be used for, quote, offensive purposes. So it's being used as a, uh, a tool of war uh, or, or of, of defending against an invasion. So they're arguing that this this network of satellites, it's just meant for connecting to the internet and, and, and one day powering mobile phones as well. So that's the reason why the service has been withdrawn. I mean, it's in 30 countries around the world, and there's plans for 42,000 satellites. So you, you could argue that withdrawing it from Ukraine specifically uh, it does look like a very arbitrary decision.
1: It does, Meg, and I, I guess it kind of comes down to some... I guess it somewhat comes down to some philosophical arguments that are really at the root of the internet. I mean, there's for a long time there was an argument about this concept of net neutrality that, you know, the the services that that maintain the pipes should not be influenced by what you use the pipes for, for lack of a better term. And this and I think the idea of net neutrality has eroded over the years a lot, um, you know, as you know, as ISPs have given you, you know, non-metered data for Netflix and things like that, and that's at one sort of fairly trivial end of the spectrum and then you hit something like this where it's actually quite serious in terms of the impact it's having
0: yeah it's it's it is a tough line and it is you know again the 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 ever optimist in me is like no it's it's the internet they need access to the internet the good people they're just trying to do good things but we know that that's not the, the way that the world is and and for every good person there are the bad ones as as well and you know i guess you have to look within yourself and your morals and your ethics and you go am i okay with my my product being used as a weapon of war well, I wouldn't be okay with that. But then what are the consequences of going... It, it is. It, it's, a, it's a moral question. It's a philosophical question. It is, as you say, it goes to the, the core of net neutrality. What should this technology be used for? I don't think there is a right answer for the situation in Ukraine. But at the same time, I think that for me, I'd be on the side of... I, in this war, I am on the side of Ukraine, and therefore I'd want them to have access to whatever they need to be able to protect themselves.
1: The phrasing of for offensive purposes is really interesting to me because we know that the internet is used to wage cyber wars and and, uh, intellectual espionage and and all all manner of other things. And we know that the internet is used for all of those things, not just facilitating um, physical battles, right? And I guess the question is how are we defining offensive purposes, right? Because the internet is a platform of of war and has become quite a significant one over the, the last couple of years. Where would you, like, where's the definition for you, Mike, of, of, for offensive purposes?
2: I mean, living aside the fact that, you know, arguably uh, Ukraine isn't on the offensive, it's, it's defending an, an invasion into its sovereign territory. <laughs> so there's that, you know, you know uh, semantic question to it. But I think more broadly, it's just another example of um, the question only comes up because big tech is so big now that it finds itself unavoidably becoming politicised. So really, in an ideal world, there would just be complete net neutrality and these platforms would exist, um, you know, just as, as a sort of basis for, for whatever happens. And really, I mean, the answer to it is Ukraine is entitled to defend its borders, but what it should have is sovereign capability to um, have its own platform where it can pilot all its drones and do what it wants. But the problem is that it's having to rely on Starlink as a service and then, you know, the company decides... This is um, not an acceptable use of our technology. Uh, You know, despite the fact that Western governments more more broadly are offering as much military support and help as they can to Ukraine. So I think it's, again, it's big tech being in a space that is more properly the domain of governments, where, you know, it shouldn't be a decision that comes down to Elon Musk whether or not this platform is used by Ukraine to defend itself. (laughs) It should be a geopolitical question handled by governments. But of course, big tech is so big that it transcends that sometimes.
1: This has obviously been a roundly criticized move in Ukraine. What do we think is going to happen next, Meg? Well, look,
0: it's interesting. At the moment, they're only accessing or controlling access to the technology for the drones or the internet access for the drones. So it's not a complete wipeout. I think that it, we are at this precipice, though, of is big tech, the control of big tech, are they, you know, are they as big as governments? Do they have the right to control these things? Why are we in a situation, I mean, these are all rhetorical questions, but why are we in a situation in 2023 where there's a country that can't put up its own Internet or have access to its own Internet? I think that, it, that this is going to change conversations around access to internet and who is responsible for those things. And then also the way that we use technology in times of crisis, in times of of war, in times of devastation, like we're seeing in Turkey and Syria. I think it's we're at a precipice. How fast is it going to move? I'm unsure, but it's a a turning point.
2: I mean, I think it's a really hard question because these services are, you know, they're, they're corporate entities. They're not in the direct control of, uh, of state governments. So I think all, you know, the, the first and most obvious reaction is, is to criticise these things when they happen. So criticise the denial of uh, Ukraine's right to pilot its own drones. Criticise it when uh, access to Twitter gets turned off in, amid a disaster response in Turkey. I've just got to keep watching and calling these things out.
1: And with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, Mike Hopkins, Deputy Chief of Staff at The Conversation. Thanks for being on the show. A pleasure. And Meg Coffee, social media expert and the managing director of Coffee and Tea. Thank you so much for being back on Download the Show.
0: Oh, I love chatting with you.
1: And if you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever app you happen to be listening to us on. Even if that app is just a radio, you can just like tap on the radio and say, good job, radio. Uh, my name is Mark Fennell, and I will catch you next week with another episode of Download This Show.